Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Get up to 30% off wedding jewelry at BlueNile.com and remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence, for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Competition never waits. Take your gear on the go with a custom pack built to protect it. Because any place can be an arena. Game on. The Tumi Esports Capsule. Available on Tumi.com and select Tumi stores. Salutations, Craig Fitzpatrick speaking, steering the good ship now on tour. Um, it's been a bit of a coup, a bloodless coup. Dave won't be back. Uh, he will, he will. He's just taking well-deserved week off. After the excitement of um, Ariana Grande and America wore off, he's like, okay, it's my time for a holiday. In his stead, we thought we might get one of the cast of Wild Mountain Time to just do a spot-on imitation of him. No one would be any the wiser. But um, I guess Christopher Walken's race probably too high. So right next on my list, right next to Walken was Zara Hederman. Yay! Hello. Wow, so nice to be uh, considered so high up to uh, Christopher Walken. That's I've kind of got you in the same group. You've got you've got a Walken vibe. Has anyone ever said that to you? Um, well, I've got two legs, and I got made to be on them. <laughs> That's all we need on this show. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have to say, Craig, I really liked your new name, which my is, new... uh, yeah, your new name, Craig, my concerns are global, Fitzpatrick. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit of a wordy nickname. I don't know if it's going to catch on and I'm not yeah. leaving the house. So I guess I'll have to wait till we get back to normality and I can start like spreading around town and just kind of, you know, dropping it here and there in coffee shops and people will just, yeah. it'll take off from there. Uh, it's a matter it's... of time before you're just concerns. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah, this has been a long time coming. Um, I know. It's been, what, six months of lockdown. Um, Mm. We've maintained the show throughout, thanks to co-hosts like yourself helping us out, even when one of us was off. Um, The likes of Fanula Jones, Mark O'Brien have helped me and done sterling jobs. But I must say, 
I've been kind of jealous that Dave has had the monopoly on the Zara chats, particularly when you're yeah. in Scout and in person, which I have not yeah. experienced for <laughs> months. So this Zoom is right, really what I need. How do you feel about it? Yeah. It's, it's finally happening, Zara. I'm so excited because it's been, what, I think at least two years since we've even done an O-Encore together. Like, what's been? Up? What I was think the last, last one? Time, wasn't it 1975, was it? I think it was. Wow, yeah. that was an episode for the ages. Your incredible review. <laughs> you and I agreed. And then Hanratty was like, no, never again. I can't, it can't be two against one again. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I'm very excited because every time I listen to No Encore, you'll say something. And in my head, if I'm walking my bike, I'll just go, Craig is literally like my musical twin. So... <laughs> It's, it's that's beautiful. Ironic. I don't know if that's yeah. going to make for a good show where we're just like, yeah, 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 good point. Let's move on. Um, true. But in honour well, in honor of this milestone moment, Sarah, um, <laughs> our first clip, I've got a little bit of Peaches and Herb. good of course. <laughs> we need the clip to, we was need already like 25 seconds long Sarah. it went uh, on for a while i also forgot how kind of schmaltzy and romantic that is it was like uh i should point out to the, to, for the listener that this was a reference to um your kind of quote when you were like yeah i'm signing up let's do the show um reunited and feel so good i didn't just pick this out of thin air but yeah i mean that works right <laughs> well look reunited and it feels so good craig we're reunited and we've got a job to do, Zara. Um, so on oh, this episode, job, yeah. <laughs> Kylie's back with Disco <laughs> and an album called Disco. <laughs> and in honour of Kylie, we're going to be tackling the best and worst musical reinventions. Zara, this is your top five. I'm very excited about it. I'm on worst, you're on best. What was your thinking behind this? What are our kind of criteria? How are you approaching it? Okay, so my criteria for this um, was... I put some kind of really strict parameters on myself where there's obviously so many people that you could choose because loads of people have reinvented themselves. One, a couple of things that I had in mind was I really wanted one for the reinvention to kind of go against like the grain of contemporaneous artists and music of that time when the thing was happening. Um, so I didn't want someone to just be following the tide and the sound of a certain era. Um, I also wanted, um, a reinvention that kind of catapulted the artist into like a completely new terrain. Um, and, um, also that really changed then the rest of like their music. There is though, I will say one kind of contentious um inclusion of my top five that kind of goes against that okay but i felt it was an important one what about you craig what were your okay. um well in terms of worst i don't think i some of those points yep yeah, totally i hear you but like in terms of you know going against the grain um a lot of mine are probably people you know following the herd um with disastrous results <laughs> so i i kind of just picked absolute shockers sarah there's some oh, really right. really suspect stuff here um <laughs> Alter egos happening. It gets weird. Yes. 
before we get into that, we have a whole lot of show. If you would like to support this show, um, and just by listening to us, you are, of course, supporting us with your time, your energy. But if you want to support us with your money, you can go to patreon.com forward slash no encore. Um, a bunch of you are already doing that, and we really uh, can't thank you enough. It just helps us get kind of equipment, keep going. Uh, it can occasionally be a very uh, enjoyable slog, but a slog nonetheless when we're just trying to go from week to week. So having the Patreon there has been immense and has kept us going uh, this year. Also keeping us going this year has been virtual award shows as we enter (laughs) the new section, Zara. It was quite a rock and roll weekend because I think maybe this show's um, third favourite award show was back. It was the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction um, just Mm. behind... Um, we've got a shout out choice because we get drunk there every year and yeah. uh, the Ivor Novellos, which I think we uh. weirdly like, ironically, I think maybe not even anymore. But that's got to be number two. Yeah. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame happened this weekend. It was, um, yeah, very rock and roll. It was, if rock, if your idea of rock and roll is like Zoom packages of kind of like over the hill musicians, like sitting in their enormous gaffes and um, yeah. It's what did you make like, of it? <laughs> it's kind of the quintessential music industry thing, isn't it? Like, it's really corporate, obviously. Yeah. Um, this kind of iteration of it where it went, what did what did they say? They were like, this isn't, um, this isn't like a live stream. It's not virtual. Uh, HBO labelled it an exclusive special, um, which yeah. I thought was kind of funny. Another thing that I just found really hilarious about this news story in particular along with some of the inductees, is that like, even though Hanratty isn't here on the podcast, I was really excited for an episode where there's literally no Nine Inch Nails or Trent Reznor <laughs> Tough look, Sarah. But oh no, oh no. <laughs> Big Trent rocked up and yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, I watched actually today, obviously the inductees this year were Depeche Mode, Doobie mm-hmm. Brothers, legend about yep. time uh whitney houston nine inch nails notorious big t-rex and then we had legendary talent managers john lando and irving azoff um but i don't know about you craig but when you did you watch trent's acceptance speech video yeah i did uh, <laughs> it was like it was like asmr with his leather jacket at the start the crinkling stuff I was like oh this is so strange um <laughs> But even I just thought it was so funny how like he obviously is like, like, okay, I know it's like Hanratty a lot about like always going on about his boy Trent, but um, he has done some very good stuff, especially with like David Lynch soundtracks. Um, that's kind of where I would know him best. But I love like um, his, uh, as it says here, his pivot in ideology in Rock Hall history, um, where he said that he didn't give a fuck and honestly couldn't give less of a shit to them being like, thank you so much. This is such an honour. I know. Yeah, well, he did jarring. It, I know. In fairness to him, he kind of did the thing of like, this is great for um, the genre of industrial rock, which of course he's been at the mm. forefront of. Um, throughout the 90s and beyond but yeah it's I, I kind of like to think that maybe he's just mellowing as a dude like I kind of get those vibes from him he's just like you know bit of perspective particularly in this year of the pandemic someone wants to do a nice thing for me I'll just record my little bit in my letter and get on with it but they all kind of change their tune eventually don't they like for the hall of fame it's such a kind of 
weirdly tacky thing that's basically mm-hmm. like the Cleveland Tourism Board being like, come to Cleveland and check out our stuff. Like even this HBO thing had like a five minute ad <laughs> for like the museum and all this crap. But everyone wants to be in it. Um, mm. And e- even Trent, yeah. Yeah, and even, I thought it was actually quite um, sad, the bit about Whitney Houston, how she was at yeah. the ceremony. And she was just like, oh, I really want to be, um, I really want to be included in this. This is so special. And obviously, of course, it's really tragic that um, it has to be posthumously for her. Um, what were your other kind of highlights from this news piece about the... Um, I did, about- yeah. I did like that story where it was, I think, her sister-in-law... Pat Houston saying that like it was back in 2009 and they were at Earl's Court or we were doing a massive show Mm. and kind of out of the blue Whitney Houston was just like looked at her and was like this is really special but there's only one thing missing I've got to get to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame (laughs) just like that's such a weird thing for like Whitney Houston to like in that moment there's no context whatsoever but um yeah thankfully it came true um What what were my highlights? I just kind of like Iggy Pop just kind of waffling on about Trent Reznor and comparing him to like a 15th century like conquistador or something. So Um, He kind of dressed up for the occasion. That was fun. Um, Depeche Mode seemed very excited and upbeat, which was like totally against the mood of Depeche Mode, which was always good. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, I just like liked the kind of reaction stuff. We, what we were missing out on is like they're, they're they're not interacting, so you don't get any of the usual like fights between ex band members or like mm. just different genres clashing. There's no live performances. They didn't include any stuff like that, which was a bit weird. Mm. Like obviously as well, like it's such a shame that there was no live performances because could you have imagined the Michael McDonald's performance oh. that we would have gotten like, <laughs> like that when I was like going through this and then I didn't realise that the Doobie Brothers had been included and then I loved as well in this article um, so it's like from Vulture and it's the highs and lows yeah. and then uh, the final one is the Vulture Honorary Award for Excellence in Interior Design goes to Michael McDonald of the Doobie Brothers that Yacht Rock dollar is no joke <laughs> like, yeah lush surroundings actually, there to match his voice <laughs> He's such a dude. I love him. Um, oh. Big in the Steely Dan story as well, which I've recently gotten into that band, as everyone that listens to the show knows. Oh. You're a fan as well. So yeah, big love to Michael. Yeah, yeah I had, um, I came around them about two years ago. It took me a while. Um, what's your favourite Steely Dan album? <sighs> I'm going to be really boring and just be like, it's got to be Asia because it's essentially perfect. And Gaucho's my number two, though. I like that they're kind of like slightly falling apart and it's a bit seedier, but the songs are great. It's kind of mm. darker. I love them all. They like Within the space of 10 years, they kind of go through so many different phases. I'm probably least into the very rock beginnings, but as they transition into these slick kind of like old jazz maestros, I'm like, yes. And they're barely even playing on their own records because they've just got like the world's greatest session musicians. Um, so yeah, I'm still on my journey. What's yours? Uh, oh, Campai Trail. That's my favourite. <laughs> oh, really? Okay, so the opposite of me. <laughs> I will say, like, opening yeah. with Do It Again, that is one of the greatest rock openings of all time. It's Incredible. Such a jam. It's Adam such is a listening jam. in and he says, We call ourselves Steely fans. We do, Adam. We do. We do. Slick. In the, uh, in the Steely Dandum. We stand a quick king. Um, have you seen actually in Arthur's just off Thomas Street, there's a Steely Dan um, kind of tribute band called Asia. I, th- um, I saw I w- Asia, yeah, years ago before I was into I Steely th- Dan and they were incredible. And I remember being so like, I'm good. now going to get into Steely Dan and I just didn't. 
but they're yeah. so good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're yeah. still going. That's brilliant. Um, I don't know if they're still going. I think someone in it died, perhaps. Yeah, I, I think know. Greg I, Boland, who was actually, yeah, yeah he was a friend of um, my answer. Yeah, so. Yeah, they're brilliant. They're such a good live band. Um, but anyway, on from one award show to another, which was hosted yeah, by... Yeah, there was no... Little there was mix. no... <laughs> There was no performances in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but if you wanted performances, you could get like the likes of David Guetta in various destinations around Europe. It was, of course, <laughs> the EMAs happened, hosted, as you say, by Little Mix. Um, big takeaway with this one for me is that the EMAs is still kind of a thing. I haven't seen it in years, unless I probably mm. like chatted about it on this show and swiftly forgot all about it. Have you any strong feelings about the EMAs? My one kind of EMAs thing is that like everyone remembers when it was in Dublin and that was huge as a kid. Yeah. Even if it yeah. was a bit enough. I think Icky Pop was performing at that one weirdly and like Marilyn Manson and Rona mm. Keating was hosting. It was a weird was, mashup of... Was Britney at it? Britney was at it, yeah. Britney yeah. was in town, which was very exciting. Um, yeah, I was never really that into the EMAs when I was growing up. I always loved the VMAs though. Um, and then I remember growing up, I also I always found like the delineation between the two really confusing because they were like, oh, the EMAs. And I, would, I would always be like, oh yeah, that's the one I like. And they'd be like, no, it's not the one I like. And then I really had to just hammer into my head that it like, the f- I couldn't abbreviate them anymore because I just right. got so confused. Um, but I do not remember like categories like biggest fans. Yeah. Do you remember that from the uh, day? No, I don't really. One. <laughs> biggest fans is weird. I guess they're just under pressure from all the toxic fan groups on Twitter to like <laughs> big them up. I like the idea that the EMAs have just been totally hijacked by like different hives. And there's like yeah. lots of doxing going on and it's just like completely under con- their control. It would explain yeah. why BTS were massive winners. They probably deserved though. I think they took home four prizes. And mm. yeah, like when you look at the different categories, it is a case of like, like Cal- Khaled won. Yeah, Khaled won best video for pop stars. Oh, yeah. Like Christ. Uh, I think Drake <laughs> and Bieber were on that one. Coldplay won best rock. And it was like I mean, a category that also had like Green Day. Do you know what I mean? It's like... How are Green Day in a best rock category in 2020? I have no idea. Particularly with the standard of the material coming out with, it's just like... Exactly, no, that's... that's I mean, Billy Joe was like, I'm going to save rock. We started it and I'm back and we're going to do it. So (laughs) I guess his PR just like paid off and yeah. I was also just like quite shocked by how Little Mix were the hosts. I didn't realise that they had such... They're kind of massive though, right? I don't, yeah, I, like the pop world, I'm just like, Craig's mouth just kind of like slightly opened up. Like, oh. <laughs> um, yeah, like I've always kind of strayed a little bit to the left of pop, but like I would know who's big, but I would never have thought that Little Mix would ever get the chance to host the EMAs. Well, I believe... Maybe I'm I was, thinking of the VMAs again, I don't know, but... <laughs> yeah, like I think the EMAs are just like the the European stations try and do a pale imitation mm. of the VMAs. Like, there's no kind of, like, thematic difference, I don't think. Um, yeah. But, yeah, Little Mix, I th- I believe, are vying for number one in the UK with Kylie. So, um, yes. the listener will know how that uh, battle panned out. But, yeah, I mean, I guess they're kind of consummate and kind of number one getters. I, I c- mm. couldn't tell you any of their songs, but they're a thing. Yeah, why not host mm. the EMAs? They wouldn't host the VMAs. No. Well, I tell you who else wouldn't host um, the EMAs or VMAs. Go on. (laughs) Is this a link, Sarah? (laughs) 
go for it. Uh, the world's worst linker. Um, Hans, uh, Isaac Hansen. That's who. <laughs> I like that you were going for Hansen and then you're like, maybe the other two have a shot, but Isaac Hansen is the, yeah. in the spotlight here for this story. Yeah, we've got a Hansen section, Zara, which oh, uh, we're calling mm, what? <laughs> Because oh, when I saw that, I creased myself laughing. It was very good work. So yeah, I, Isaac has gone on an Instagram rant. Uh, I didn't know people ranted on Instagram. I thought that was just for like photos and apologies, but yeah. he needs to get on Twitter really by the looks of things. Um, yeah, so his big problem this week has been with COVID, uh, coronavirus. Uh, more specifically, the thoughts of a lockdown returning to the US and ruining his Christmas. Um, he's basically like doing a very like Trumpian, we need to take a stand, we can't let this beat us, we need to choose, you know... Um, what fate over fear like that's like in any way an accurate choice and yet yeah, leaning into what I kind of forgot were like Hansen's very Christian roots like he's quoting the Bible um, he was upset that Easter didn't happen uh, Thanksgiving ain't happening and he's like uh, <laughs> he ends with yeah that quote I fear God more than I fear death and far more than I fear my government three exclamation marks and I'm just like oh what I thought these boys were wholesome yeah, I do have to say though, "Faith Over Fear" is an amazing album title. So I think that maybe Isaac not Hansen, for Hanson though. Like, <laughs> right? It's a bit too metal for them. Yeah, it could be a musical reinvention, Craig. <laughs> <laughs> this is their like pivot towards hardcore industrial rock. Yeah, um, I love how like at the end of this as well, it says Isaac's statement comes as Vice publishes a piece entitled Hansen is facing a mutiny from its own fans. I kind of have to wonder how big their fan base is like now compared to like 20 years ago. Yeah, you know the thing I mean? is like, yeah, they've, they've kept on trucking and you know, <laughs> they've stayed working and I think they've like shored up quite a like a loyal set of fans. It's kind of like a, mm. I think, like a Daniel O'Donnell situation where it's, if you're in, you're kind of in, which mm. makes this like story all the more remarkable because like, yeah, um, they're, the fans are turning on the bands. There's a kind of mutiny within the fan base. It's really interesting yeah. because like the Isaac thing seemed totally out of blue, but actually, um, according to this Vice article around May, um, there was a bit of a wake up call for the fans. Um particularly people that were in black and queer communities, they said they felt kind of gaslit and ignored by the band and uh, other fans in the wake of the death of George Floyd. Essentially, the band weren't really posting much about Black Lives Matter. Very non-committal, I think would be the kindest word. And mm. after lots of prodding, just kind of put up very generic, like, we're all, you know, we're all important. It's fine, blah, 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 okay. kind of stuff. Um, which wasn't great. Um, they were blocking fans as well, which I can kind of understand, but they seem to be coming from a good place. The darker thing seems to be um, they've uncovered this old, now deleted, like, Pinterest account from Zach, who was the youngest, right? Oh, and no. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, the article says it, hos- it housed a trove of pro-gun memes, many of which were racist, transphobic, homophobic and sexist. And I won't go into like some of the examples, but like it's stuff that kind of seems like right out of 4chan as opposed to Pinterest. Which is usually for like interior decoration, I presume. Mm. Um, But he's come out and said, listen, maybe some of the jokes are in bad taste. A lot of comedy is. And like he tries to 
he tries to explain one of the like uh, he, uh, I don't know one of the memes which was about a woman that's like into gun guys I don't know but again just not clearing things up at all they haven't addressed this properly and yeah it's it's bad for business Sarah it's, it's really bad for business not, yeah, it is, it's not Christmas that's what it is um, and it's definitely not a news story that I ever would have expected to uh, be reading Hansen says coronavirus is government coup like like mental but I do think though that this could open up an opportunity for Isaac to make some new friends. And also, if Hansen are going to pivot into, you know, a bit more hardcore sound, he should maybe get in touch with System of a Down's John Dalmayon. <laughs> link? Another, another stellar link. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he might be replacing Serge, who's the front man and disagrees strongly mm-hmm. with John from the band. Uh, it's one of those cases of like, it's not just the fan base that are like eating each other, it's the band themselves. Yeah, because John Dalmain, I guess, um, from System of Down has said that the US election is not over um, uh, until an investigation to voted fraud has been conducted. He's criticising the Democratic Party. Um, he's criticising the Black Lives Matter movement. It's all very nasty stuff. Um and yeah, like just kind of deep into like QAnon territory and it must be a weird situation for Surge, for a band that are like so kind of politically skewed in a lot of their music and seem to mm. be quite right on. And um, yeah, I don't know. He's also his brother-in-law. So I know, like, I was no just getting away from say, him. <laughs> yeah. Like, I think maybe like Surge is kind of hoping that Christmas is going to be cancelled because that's going to be like such an uncomfortable Christmas dinner. Like here, pass the gravy. Oh no, I won't. Because as uh, John says here, he fought for us since day one. Now it's time to fight for him. So uh, I think that Christmas dinner oh, table would get quite touchy. Yeah, it's really bizarre. Um, Very wild to see people who you'd kind of think especially like musicians because so much of like music comes out of like dissatisfaction with government and politics and going against it so then when you do see like a band like you said who are like pretty right on to then be like defending Trump it's just a bit unsettling like like what's next Rage Against the Machine are they going to come out as like yeah, I know. I really hope not, Greg. I really you know, th- hope not. There is a lot of complexity to it. He's, you know, he's Armenian. Um, so you have mm. to take into account that culture and the politics of there and how that kind of influences his thinking. But it's, yeah, it's a real mess when you're kind of in the band with that guy and you're also in the same family. Um, so we'll just give you an update <laughs> as well in terms of family strife. And this is a story that well, like, we kind of wanted to leave alone, but we were talking about it. Um as they kind of progressed and we just want to keep people abreast of what's happening. There's been some news in the Britney Spears um, story. Um, she's been in court again. She's trying to, um, she's basically under the control um, of her father. He's got this conservatorship over, he's basically her guy, her, um, basically the guy calling the shots when it comes to her finances, even how she has access to her kids, the whole shebang. Um, and she's been trying to get a separation there. Um, she was talking in court this week. She kind of outlined how she was afraid of her father and also that she would not perform again while he's um, in conservation or ship of the estate. I cannot use that term whatsoever. I don't know how you say it. <laughs> it is a tricky but one. But <laughs> it's, it's not good stuff. And 
Yeah, we've been kind of following this for a while. And there's also the kind of associated like hashtag free Britney movement where fans are saying like she's being held against her will. Um, she did mention um, in the latest update, she acknowledged the movement in recent court papers. She said she welcomes and appreciates the informed support of many of uh, the fans. So I guess that's a nod to maybe them kind of being in line with what's happening to her. But essentially what she wants to happen is this private wealth management firm, the Besmer Trust, to be appointed a sole conservator. I'm going with conservator on this one. Um, you do, you And <laughs> the latest result from the judge is that they will um, be appointed as co-conservator, <laughs> um, which is a good move, which is good news. Um mm. And I think there's going to be further judgment on where the fodder stands, but it's just such a mess. Um, keep you yeah. kind of abreast of that one. But yeah, we wish the best it's for her. a Britain. very sad story, yeah. Very sad. Another, like, even just yeah. to read her, oh, sorry, just to even read her say that she's afraid of her father. Like, that's, it kind of really amplifies the um, sadness of the story because, like, there's one thing of, like, say, an external figure being a conservator, but when it is actually your parent, um, that kind of adds a whole other dynamic to it. So yeah, I hope hope Brittany gets out of that, and I hope she um performs again soon. Yeah, um, sticking with kind of sad news, I guess. Or this is kind of just a bit bittersweet for sure, and a bit weird. Arcade Fire have been talking. They've got a new single. It's not good if you heard it. Oh, <laughs> Generation A. Yeah. Uh, yeah, very much done with them. I think they did it on yeah. Colbert. I won't say I'm very much done with them. That's extremely harsh and Funeral is amazing, but it's been a while since I was excited by uh, Arcade Fire. More excited by this Mm. story, it must be said. Wim Butler's been talking about his relationship and the band's relationship with the late David Bowie, um, which was, you know, famous kind of connection. Like Bowie was a real champion of them in the early days. He appeared um, on one of their records. He was on Reflector, I think. And yeah, Wynn was saying like they used to email back and forth, of course, was a huge deal for him. Like he's got a photo of him uh, in the studio and he kind of looks up at the photo of David when he needs inspiration. So yeah, it must have been huge for him. To thank David for being on Reflector, uh, though himself and Regine had bought a gift. It was a painting they got in Haiti, um, just as a thank you. Wynn says we were supposed to mail it to him and we got busy and forgot about it. I think we know what happened in the interim. He passed away. Could have mailed it. <laughs> Sarah was. <laughs> Sarah. I love that. Just like the pause before that. It's like, yeah, come on, Craig. It's been four years. <laughs> it's been four years. It's been as long as it's taken Wynne and Regine to get their oh shit together God. and go to the post office. Well, yeah, they got their shit together uh, at this point, and the big reveal, yeah. Lara, is that the they painting. They got their shit together when they have a single coming out and they need to generate new stories. Still dining out on that Bowie thing, yeah. <laughs> like, for fuck's sake. Like, um, when I saw this actually uh, the other day, I just I had to roll my eyes because, like, I'm kind of like, I'm in the exact same mindset as you with this band where I used to really love them. Um, and then something just switched in my head, and I just found when to be, in particular, of all the members of the band, to be really just annoyingly pretentious. Like, he wasn't even pretentious and making something that was like worthwhile. Like that last album that they did was just piss poor. Like, um, 
and then I saw them in the three arena around that time and it was it was torturous um but I just really felt that like this was such a masturbatory news story for them to like talk about and come out about like like obviously David Bowie is like such an icon he's so legendary um and really just like someone that a lot of people look up to and yeah he collaborated with them he as Wynne says here he believed in them whatever um I just kind of feel like if you buy then someone who you regard so highly and who you would maybe like consider a friend that you email you'd think that like if you buy them a present you'll send it to them like don't be don't yeah. be talking about it four years later and also, I'm quite a bad procrastinator so I kind of understood this a bit Oh, like same. Like I've got stuff like waiting to be returned that I've bought online yeah. and I'm putting it on the back burner. But like, I also just thought the detail of like, um, what is the detail where it's the like big the reveal? Voodoo, yeah, the is that painting. it was a painting of a black star, yeah. which was of course the Bowie's like, last album. Yeah, and they didn't, they didn't know. know about yeah, the album. they didn't it's like, know. Fuck off. So it's like, like this cosmic <laughs> moment, and they've still got this connection with David <laughs> beyond the grave. It actually, when you were saying that, it reminded me of um. LCD sound system when they returned after making like the big hoo-ha about like the big hoo-ha about their (laughs) like retirement and how we're going out on top and we're doing like Madison Square Garden and then James Murphy came back and it was a couple of years ago I didn't love the record but what really wound me up was he again used kind of like the Bowie connection where he was like well David Bowie um you know before he passed said you really need to get that band back together and do what you're afraid of and so that was like his get out of jail free card where he like deceived all the fans <laughs> essentially mm, yeah. and being like that's it come to our shows because this is all you're getting by the compilation yeah. then to return and just be like oh you know we got david's blessing um <laughs> kind of cynical i guess we have a picture of him in our studio and we look up and it's like yeah guys you're on the right path keep going it's like Hunt, keep going till you leave that studio and get away from recording something else like because I don't know they just really infuriate me now their whole PR stint for the last album absolutely just ground my gears so much and I got into like quite a heated argument about Arcade Fire and their PR kind of position for that last album and I think it was just that moment was when it really just cemented it for me that these are just like really annoying and irritating and they're not even doing anything that's worth all of this like smoke that they're blowing um so yeah this this story as you can imagine Craig absolutely ticked me right off I'm right there with you I'm right there with you (laughs) if you would prefer some stories that don't take you off that actually expand your mind a little and answer some of the big questions of life I might just have the podcast for you Zara it's time for a little taste of what else you can find on the glorious headstuff podcast uh, network we're getting up market this week and we're getting a little literary Um, this is words to that effect with some words to this effect I'm Connor Reid with words to that effect How do the Victorians invent time? Where do all those pirate cliches come from? Should we all read romance novels? Why are kids so obsessed with dinosaurs? What makes the perfect detective story? What happens to culture and society in a post-apocalyptic world where everything has stopped? Words to that effect tell stories of the fiction that shapes popular culture. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts and at wttepodcast.com.
Yeah, words to that effect on the Headstuff Podcast Network. It's like a narrative storytelling show. I was actually rummaging around the back catalogue and I think I need a deeper dive. They do some cool like Lovecraftian stuff, which might be right up my street. So yeah, guys, check that out if you would like. Um, now we turn to our album of the week. We'll see if Kylie's return was right up my street. Um, it's another case of Housebound Disco. Um, the album is called Disco. It's been a big year for kind of 4-4 four, four beats. Started with like Dua Lipa, I think. We've had Gaga's reemergence, uh, Lady Gaga, as Trump might say, and what Roisin Murphy do? being the <laughs> most recent, just kind of going all in with Roisin Machine. So it's now the return of a much-loved Australian export, Nick Cave's mate, uh, Kylie's back with Disco. Here's the taste. Yeah, that was magic. The opening track from Disco and your moves, guys, were magic. Sarah and Adam bopping along. Adam, I particularly like the finger pointing that was happening. <laughs> yeah. It was exceptional. All of the coy. title Disco, <laughs> Kylie said kind of feck it, basically. Like she's, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound. Uh, this record totally wears his influences on sleeve. She's had great success with this kind of music before. It's maybe been the backbone of her career, which goes a little mm. something like, just for a quick primer, um, started on Ramsey Street, uh, eventually shed the dead weight of Jason Donovan, moved to the UK uh, to transition from soap to pop star, uh, did a deal with the devil, the tree-headed devil that is Stock Aiken and Waterman, um, was embraced by the gay community, did some murder ballads with Nick Cave, went a bit indie, and then was like embraced by everyone for the likes of spinning around, can't get you out of my head. Slow was a Mark O'Brien choice on this very show for one of the sexiest songs of all time. It's a great song. Um, a there's song. been... Ups and downs, um, but she's she's done enough, I think, to lose the Minogue name. So she's just Kylie, which is huge, Sarah. Just to, you know, be known by one name, of course. There's a lot of goodwill for Kylie. Does that goodwill extend to this 12-track album, Sarah? Um, well, before we get into um, the album, I have kind of a three-part burning question for you, Greg. I love it. Okay, let's go. Okay. So obviously this album is called Disco. Recently you guys did top five disco songs and I believe that you were wearing some disco shoes. Yes, white shoes. Are you wearing those shoes right now? No, I'm not. I totally forgot to break them out. Can I see these shoes, please? You can indeed. If you want to yes! fill some <laughs> some time and just chat away about like disco or something. One second. Okay, I'll start talking about the album. So um, so yeah, so the goodwill for this album, obviously, as Craig mentioned there, Slow, which is a song that I think I had to use quite a lot as a palate cleanser for this album. Um, you know, I actually found this album quite difficult to listen to um, for all of its embodiment of disco. Maybe, Zara, right, you weren't wearing the right footwear. <laughs> <laughs> These are my oh. white boots. <laughs> These are the heels. I haven't worn them out and about yet. When they Great. arrived, I got them online. I was like, "These might be a bit much." They didn't look they like are this much. Phenomenal. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't expecting the the high 
bit at the ankle. Yeah, they're, oh my they're quite God. high. Like, yeah, I, I'll have to post a photo because I didn't last time. So that's a good reminder. So I'll lob it up okay. on um, Ash No Encore Show. And I might just break them out for like our first proper like get together in person in town. Oh I'll my see. God, I'll see what they do. look like. It's going to be yeah, weird pairing have, them with something. Yeah, you're going to have some job keeping them clean. Oh, most definitely. Yeah. Yeah. They're, stri- maybe the point. they're strictly for the dance floors, Zara. But there's I no, mean, I think there's no freaking the, in these. <laughs> the point of disco shoes is you got to get a bit dirty in them, isn't that right? <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> I sound like, Sounded like my mom there. Or something. Um, Just review the album. <laughs> sorry, um, but yeah, you're saying it was difficult you. for you, yeah? Yeah, it was difficult for me because I kind of feel that, like, obviously, disco it embodies like such freedom, such you know, a, um, a feeling of collective joy of running to the dance floor with your friends just like absolutely losing yourself in music and I think the whole point of it is kind of escapism Mm -hmm. and I think that with this Kylie album Disco I often find myself listening to the songs one feeling like I had heard the hooks before like nothing Mm. really seemed very new or original and also a lot of the songs felt as though they were like designed specifically for like BBC end of year montages like there's so many songs on this where like it's literally just I could imagine them in the studio well it was actually recorded in her home studio because it was made during lockdown um I could kind of imagine just you know manipulating the formula of disco to you know play alongside I don't know the Great British Bake Off final and like to show the journey of all the bakers like so in that way a lot of this album to me felt very insincere which again a part of disco that I feel is very intricate to the genre is that there is a bit like even though it's really fun and it's very fanciful there is a bit of sincerity to like what's being said in it yeah um also, like a really interesting thing that I found about this album was that she, because it was made mostly in her home, she taught herself how to use Pro Tools, was it Pro Tools that she used, um, to engineer her vocals. Um, I hate to say this because she has done it. Um, I think her vocals sound really bad on this. Where do you, um, yeah, kind of over, I didn't know that fact, which is interesting because yeah. they sound at times, like I think her performances are quite good, but they sound weirdly mm. over-treated and just a bit kind of warped or and not yeah. in the way they're supposed to be. Yeah, no. And then um, I was reading actually a profile, an interview she did with The Guardian's Laura Snape's and uh, she was talking about like when she was making the album and how she was like had the freedom to work on her own clock basically because she did it at home and she was like oh I just enjoyed the process so much that I was like I found myself at one half one in the morning being like oh wow like I can't believe it's this time oh I'll just put down another take and it's like "Mm, that kind of like I don't know I felt that sometimes that come like even though I can't really feel much emotion from her vocals because they are so treated it just felt a bit stilted it felt very dated like when you think about when you think about like some of the disco albums that came out earlier this year like you mentioned say like Roshi Murphy but the one that really sticks out to me is the Jesse Ware album that came out yeah actually yeah Um, that that did disco and it also did like nods to the past, like with Donna Summer and Minnie Riperton so well, where she melded it with her own style. 
with this, I just kind of really feel like Kylie is hiding behind a lot of like tried and tested formulas and hooks, um, which is a real disappointment because she has so many amazing hits in her in her canon. So yeah, it's it's not one that I would be returning to. But did it work okay. for you? It's interesting. I kind of agree with some of your points, but that leads me in different directions. So yeah, I, like I think her last album was apparently like a countrified. I think it's mm. called Golden or something. It's just her trying stuff, and I don't know if it quite worked for people. So this felt like you could say, you know, returning to the safety zone, um, but rather than the danger zone, which I think is where we all want Kylie to go. Um, but I kind of saw it as more of a like hot homecoming for her, to be honest, because she kind of made her name on this stuff. I thought she did whatever about the way the vocals are done. I thought she kind of sold it quite well. I just bought into her sincerity and she's got a kind of warmth and like a sunshine thing about her that worked for me on this album because I haven't paid too much attention to Kylie over the years, but it was kind of endearing. I totally agree with your points about it's not really disco. Like, it's kind of disco yeah. pop. Like I guess she started, like, she was probably at the forefront of, like, the disco revival, which didn't have a lot of the, you know, when you think of the first wave of disco, a lot of great kind of actually musicianship and just really good session players that were just kind of let loose. A bit mm-hmm. of kind of grit as well and, like, danger. Whereas she's coming from a late 80s, 90s disco vibe that is very kind of sterile at times Mm. um a lot of this is kind of quite 90s and kind of cookie cutter Mm. and yeah there was definite moments where i felt like she was just hitting like the disco preset button (laughs) (laughs) and you'd get like the kind of what you imagine is like the wilhelm scream of like string stabs you're like i've heard this a billion times and she's just going okay i'll stick that in there Mm. so yeah musically i think as a collection it kind of blends into one. Now, I will say, I think it does set a kind of mood. And I think she's come with pretty decent pop songs, right? So, like, I was, I might draw some comparisons to some of the other, you know, disco revival albums of this year. But I kept thinking about Bruce Springsteen's latest album, which we <laughs> talked about two weeks ago. Uh, Letter to You. Just in how, like, right, you've two artists, like, loyal fan bases, uh, long of kind of very different careers. But they're both, like, returning to sounds that made their name. Um, that they feel kind of super comfortable with and have maybe previously kicked against. Um, and I felt when I talked about Bruce on the show, like he knew the kind of album he wanted to make, which was an E Street Band one. And his kind of knack for it and the sheer enthusiasm made it like a case of mission accomplished. It was like he achieved what he wanted to achieve. I think Disco kind of does the same for Kylie. I've way more misgivings because, you know, Letter to You doesn't contain lyrics about Jupiter and Mars being from another galaxy. <laughs> There's a lot of kind of stargazing and not a lot of lyrical depth for sure. It's just like mm. pure dance floor um, fluff, I guess, but knowing fluff, like that's that's all you need really. It's just a kind of vehicle for the melodies, which is grand. Mm. Um, slightly overproduced, which does spoil the party a bit, but I think by and large she throws an okay party. Like there's some good stuff here. I Like I had some issues with the Roisin Murphy album because I felt like for all it's like creativity and artistic merit... Uh, it felt like the kind of dance floor was like cordoned off behind some velvet rope and it was like more of an installation in an art gallery because lyrically she's kind of like subverting stuff and it's this new kind of post-disco alternative thing where it's a bit too cerebral. 
Mm. And here, this is just unashamedly like Kylie heading to the floor and you could hear yeah. this. Yeah, maybe like they're kind of strictly songs or just like at a wedding afters or something like that. And yeah. that kind of works. I got caught up with it in at times. 12 tracks is way too much. And there's a deluxe version. There's like four yeah. other tracks, which I'm like, I'm not, I'm not going there. It played through a no. few times. I was like, I know why these were cut. Um, <laughs> they should have been properly cut. But songs like the one we, we just heard, Magic, um, I think work quite well. Supernova. They're not Supernova up there with is, her classics, yeah. but I think there's enough kind of big courses there where I'm like, yeah, I can vibe with this. And it didn't wind me up. Like I came into mm. this week not being excited about it just because we've been bombarded by disco. It wasn't in the headspace. <laughs> but my like six or seven listens were all fine. <laughs> so yeah. mission accomplished, maybe. I did find that my last listen this evening when I was on my way home, um, like I did find that like a lot of the hooks, a lot of the choruses, I was actually singing along to them, but it was a, it was an unconscious singing along to them. Yeah. And that to me was like, it re- it showed that like the formula worked in this instance, but I don't know, like just lyrically, as you like touched on, it's, re- it's really poor. Like there's like one line in particular that really stood out to me. Where oh, yeah, um uh, what is it? You told me you like earth, wind and fire and that made up my mind. Um, that's on Monday Blues. Um, I hate is, that song. That song is so bad. I, I think songs so about annoying. like living for the weekend need to stop because it's they been done to, to death. Like Pet Shop Boys um, Thursday was the pinnacle and just everyone out <laughs> after that. Yeah. Sorry, my little mini um, rant. And then also like the final song, Celebrate You, I just thought was incredible. Like I struggled to get through that song because it just felt also like a little bit patronizing or condescending to the character of Mary that she was singing to. Um, and <laughs> that I was, just, um, yeah, no, when you were saying earlier about like, um, soundtracking montages of like ordinary people doing great things, that is the song that popped into my head. <laughs> and it's, it's probably the one song that has like a bit of like narrative depth to it. Like this ode to some Mary. Um, and she's clearly going for like that, like, you know, she's going for true disco there where it's like the uplifting against the odds reassurance of great disco. Mm. So she gets what disco's all about. But yeah, it's yeah. not the best song. And like, she does have some really good like reference points. Like when I listen to say like Last Chance, like Abbott is just impenetrable. Like it's it's fully boo, isn't it? It's yeah. Oh, like Hundy P. Like um, then you have <laughs> like sorry, um, a hundred percent. Um, and then you have something like uh, where does the DJ go? Which is very kind of like Nile Rogers esque. One thing actually, and then like also down the line, there's like obviously kind of like traces of like Shaka Khan and stuff like that. But I had two points where I had one is like a kind of expected one that it reminded me of and then another reference was kind of bizarre and the more I listened to the song I was like maybe I'm actually just losing my mind a bit with all of this glitter in this album and I'm not seeing things clearly so I kind of felt tonight my one of my last points that I had in my head was it really sounds like she listened to um random access memories a lot before making this real groove yeah, there's a real bang of like the Nile Daft Punk like uh, synergy there. And then on Dance Floor Darling, I was like, okay, if there's anyone that I could throw this reference at, it's Craig. Because he'd, he'd get it. Phoenix's Te Amo. 
Yeah. Kind of really reminded me of that, which was really jarring. I was like, this is so bizarre. It just had that same real like tropical Miami vibe to the arrangement. And then she does a bit of a kind of breakdown and it speeds up and she's getting into kind of indie territory. Yeah, yeah, I got you. Yeah. But yeah. speeds up to like nauseating <laughs> levels. Like I felt like I was on a like the waltzers at like Thunderland. Oh yeah, and uh, that's like followed by unstoppable. Like the first time I heard that through, I was just like really like yeah. I I agree because it was wearing a bit thin on me, and then unstoppable is basically her, it, like it starts with her being like I can't stop the dancing, and I was just like, is this some like medieval like dancing plague that has affected everyone? Of just like relentless, like we will get through all twelve tracks, and they will be bangers. Uh, I think she recovers a bit. Actually, no, she doesn't. Then it's in to celebrate you. Um, maybe the last good song is Where Does the DJ Go Then which is track 9 um, it's a long yeah. enough album as well in fairness for a kind of a dance pop record it is very long and I found that like it doesn't really stick with you that much like I have some of the songs are like deeply ingrained in my head but now like thinking about some of them like when I see the titles I'm like I would not be able to pick that out of a lineup now like um the other thing that I found really weird was on Say Something, the kind of weird NXS, like, guitar lick. Yeah. 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 It was just, I just... Whenever she gets away from the template, the, the kind of, the risks don't quite work. They feel a bit jarring. Mm. Uh, mm. I do like the melody to that song. Like, there's some, there's mm. good kind of pop songs here. Mm. I don't know. There is, yeah, like, there's, it's definitely, I think, it's a very inclusive album. It's, there is definitely fun for it to be or fun to be had listening to it yeah <laughs> definitely um whether like like last year she also released her fourth greatest hits album whether any fourth. of these songs yeah that's that's ambitious Log a few cds sure look on it's christmas soon um <laughs> but like whether i couldn't imagine any of these songs really cutting it or making that much of an impact within Kylie's career to be like credited as like one of her greatest hits and I did kind of do an exercise as well where I listened to like an uh, this is Kylie playlist and like Spotify had like put the whole of disco at the top of that okay that yeah playlist. yeah so I had it on shuffle and like just the the difference between like the like not inventiveness because like I don't think Kylie has ever really kind of invented the wheel with her music she's always slightly just like followed what's going on Zara are you bringing our top five team into question saying she's never reinvented herself (laughs) (laughs) no no she has (laughs) she's reinvented herself just not music she's reinvented which in fairness is a lot harder to reinvent than yourself I mean music is a lot bigger than one person one day at a time Rome wasn't built in a day like um but yeah it was just these songs fall so flat compared to slow or um like can't get you out of my head obviously or even like um better the devil you know like um so yeah I'm I was more excited to revisit the older stuff than listen to this album I have to say okay give us the numbers Zara you have to out of 10 I've been really plaguing myself with this all day because like yeah. Kylie is, she seems like such a lovely person, but... <laughs> oh God, that's that's a four. <laughs> it is a four? Oh, is it? <laughs> yeah. Um, I was, yeah. I'm going to give it, 
I'm going to give it six, I think, because okay. um, I think there's a couple of songs that you could maybe add to the Kylie canon. I like Magic. I think there's some strong songs there. There's a lot of flaws with it, but um, mm. she is such a nice person. I'm not yes. giving her a six because of that, but I think it's a six because it's a good album. Uh, there was, just before we move on, there was an interesting Rufus Wainwright quote about uh, Kylie, which Fuck I found it. when I was doing some research. And it kind of maybe encapsulates like her fan base, her longevity. See what you think it is, right? So Rufus Wainwright says that Kylie Minogue is the anti-Madonna. Self-knowledge is truly a truly beautiful thing and Kylie knows herself inside out. She is what she is and there's no attempt to make quasi-intellectual statements to substantiate it. She is the gay shorthand for joy. Fine words there. Yeah. Sir. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, clearly, yeah. There's a lot to unpack with that. <laughs> yeah. And I love like the kind of the glitchy <laughs> trying to like say something about it after um I did actually that's an interesting thing that just reminded me um I found that I would listen to disco and then I would go to confessions on a dance floor oh okay and the superior was confessions confessions for sure such a great maybe her last great album yeah (laughs) yeah 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 Yeah. it was better than uh, hard candy mdna Oh, God, um, yeah. Then she became Madame X. Do you know what? I actually didn't mind Madame X that much. Some of the songs were all right, but the whole character and like promo stuff just sunk her yeah. before it even started. But you know that she moved over to Portugal because her son is in, um, is he in like, uh, is it was it Portugal? She moved... No, she did move to Portugal because her son is like in a football academy to be a professional footballer. Yeah, Interesting. A little fun fact. (laughs) I wonder, is he actually good at football? I'm sure he's actually good at football. I'm sure it's not a funding situation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, good luck to him. Good luck to Kylie. Um, Check that out if you want. And as for Madonna, um, she, of course, is under master of reinvention. Will she appear in our top five, either of our top fives this week, it's time for the top fives. We've got best and worst. Um, Madonna might have a shake in either category. Um, here's an example of the kind of thing we might be looking for. Come again, sweet love doth now invite Thy graces that refrain To do me due delight to touch, to kiss, to die. Yes, Sting there. That time when he teamed up with a Bosnian lutist and got really, really into romance music from the 16th century. Um, a terrible musical reinvention. Or a great one? Or the best one? Who can say? You could fall into either category. Um, <laughs> he sounds like he, a bard. He, that's what, what he was going for. He'll be pleased with uh, that he, comment. Look, or, I know he listens. Uh, I'm sure that's uh, in the top five best reinventions, Craig. <laughs> um, possibly. It, it was going to be possibly in my list. It didn't make the cut, but the clip was um, infuriating me enough that I had to share the misery. So yeah. it's a case of Sting reinventing himself as a more insufferable person. Anyway, okay, we've talked about the criteria. It can be a kind of aesthetic move, can be musical, departure from what's gone before, kicking against... Um, Common Trends, um, Wrong Footing, the fan base. Zara, this was your top five choice. I'm very excited. Mm -hmm. Do you want to lead us with your fifth best musical reinvention? 
I'd love to. Um, yeah. So, okay. So one thing I mentioned earlier on is um, musicians and artists who wanted to kind of change things, um, be really innovative. Uh, for my number five choice, I can think of no better person who really was so driven by being the best in his field at what he did. So by 1969, he brought out this. Yeah, so that was, of course, Miles Davis with, um, it's about that time from his 1969 album in a silent way um i just love the image as well of dave listening back to this episode now tomorrow and they're on to jazz yeah <laughs> we've got the steely chat down and we've got jazz in um i kind of thought that Miles davis was a person that i couldn't not include in my list um obviously yeah. this period of davis is as i said 1969 it comes nine months before bitches brew which is obviously his um seminal album um this is kind of the first time where we really hear him going all hammer and tongs with going electric and marrying like technology and his improvisational play with his music um when it came out at the time i found this really interesting how and like kind of expected that it was met with a bit of mixed reception um a lot of music critics didn't really know how to gauge this fusion of you know, rock in- improvisation and jazz improvisation. Um, I think it was really perfectly um, captured by Rolling Stone's Lester Bangs when he reviewed it. Um, so I'll, I'll let you all know what he said. He said that this is the kind of album that gives you faith in the future of music. It's not rock and roll, but it's not stereotyped as jazz either. All at once, it owes almost as much to the techniques developed by rock improvisers in the last four years as to Davis's jazz background. It's part of a transcendental new music which flushes categories away and while using musical devices from all styles and cultures is defined mainly by its deep emotion and unaffected originality. Um, I kind of think... That is really all that you can say about like an artist who is reinventing themselves. I think that yeah. like kind of covered you know, it. Yeah, Miles Davis obviously is a very fascinating figure within music. Um, I listened to a biography um about him recently enough, a couple of years ago, and it was just like fascinating to hear how much of an asshole he sounds yeah not the best person no not the best person but also at the same time just like what a genius he was in like what he was doing that's obviously quite a a common um paradigm like with with people like that but to hear someone who obviously was like quite successful had a really good career up to this point to then just be like no this actually isn't enough I need to do something different I want to be the most singular kind of um trumpeter jazz musician so I'm gonna fuse like two 
two styles of music together and um yeah I've created a sound that's completely my own and then just continue to develop it so yeah I think in terms of like music as well like culturally I think it's such a huge um such a huge and important reinvention as well and kind of working with his limitations I guess right because obviously Mm. he was a bit of you know, an extremely talented musician, but in terms of his colleagues and stuff, he wasn't quite the virtuoso of some of them. Um, but he was just like, okay, this is my canvas and I'll go, I'm going to do wild things with it. And then you look at like people that were in his bands over the years, just all became legends themselves. You can't get away from Miles Davis when you look at that mid-century jazz thing. I've been trying to get into jazz uh, over the last couple of months and I've kind of steered clear of him because it just feels like the really obvious records. Like Kind of Blue I loved mm. already, a new Bitches mm. Brew. So I will return to Miles Davis. But at the moment, mm. you're kind of trying to sidestep him the whole time because he's everywhere um, yeah, in so many different would, ways and genres. Yeah, I would really recommend this album in particular um, in a silent way. It's just... It has a bit of everything. Like, um, it's really celestial. It's so immersive. Um, like there was times where I was listening to it today in work and it, like I would just find myself kind of getting a bit distracted because just the arrangements are so beautiful. Um, the electric piano on it is just like twinkles so nicely. Um, and then one thing I really loved, like a little anecdote from the recording sessions. Um, I think it was all recorded in a three-hour session um, just in one day in February in 1969. But he told, uh, Miles Davis told guitarist John McLaughlin um, to play as if he was a like novice on the guitar. So it's like, yeah, just play like you don't really know how to play the guitar. And then like the stuff he does on the album is just so gorgeous. You're like, Jesus, you make my Scarborough Fair sound even worse. <laughs> Nice. That's a lot better than George Clinton on um, Maggot Brain just being like, play the guitar like your mother's just died. Um, yeah. As instructions go, <laughs> yeah. bit gentler. I like that. It's a nice anecdote. Um, yeah, starting strong. Um, I will also start strong. And we talk about knowing and using your limitations. One man who does not know his limitations. Um, let's have a genre switch up and a name change, please, Adam. Oh, Adam looks disgusted. That bass kick in. Um, incredible. Snoop Lion there, not Snoop Dogg. Very, very different. Um, from that clip, maybe unrecognizable until you get to the little I said, where he switches back into his own voice there. And, um, yeah, shedding his dog tags, embracing reggae, kind of. It's not really reggae. And Rastafarianism, which, you know, he had a strong start, obviously, with the smoke, I suppose. Um, this album, it's a lot of rubbish music on it. It's quite watered down. Um, you could make the case that maybe Snoop's only great album is his debut, Doggy Style, and it's kind of been diminishing returns from there. But I think, like, his rap drawl pulls him through constantly. Like, that slow voice, it's kind of hypnotic, it's so iconic. It's great on like throwaway pop songs, you know, it just kind of works in any context. So when he abandons that for like toasting and singing, nothing really left. And yeah, like also the story of him becoming Snoop Lion is just, 
Um, let's just say music journalists didn't quite buy into his whole like spiritual reawakening thing. And it seemed to be just, it came down to like, okay, I need to switch up my brand. I want to do kind of more wholesome music, which he said was ostensibly for like, you know, so his grandmother and his kids could listen to him or watch him perform, but seems a bit like, okay, I need to protect the Snoop Dogg gangster brand and I need to broaden my audience. So this is a kind of nice way of doing it. And um, rather than kind of saying that in interviews, he instead <laughs> said that he was literally the reincarnation of Bob Marley, which yeah, is I'm... what got this inclusion. <laughs> Number five, if he's touch and go, but I was like, no, you've just called yourself Bob Marley. You're in. I was about to ask you, Craig, actually, is so um, there was the documentary about him reincarnated. Yeah. I have not watched that, but is that documentary focusing on this reinvention as it were have you watched it i haven't seen it all the way through i've seen some clips i've seen bunny whaler kind of um give his blessing initially and then since then he's been like this isn't good for the genre (laughs) and they've had like a big beef out of it um yeah it seemed to be a lot of like you know him tracing those kind of roots and stuff just from the clips i've seen i don't know it's it's very wishy-washy it's kind of hagiography stuff for sure. It, yeah. And it's also just like, because when you played the clip, I didn't recognise it. I was like, what the hell is this? And initially yeah. I thought it was the Sting and Shaggy album because I also haven't listened to that. And I was yeah. like, oh, maybe this is what this is. And then her, like when I heard the voice, I just still couldn't even figure it out. So it's bizarre that it's like completely just masked Snoop's identity entirely. And it's almost like he is a vehicle for some, like, Bob Marty's basically. Maybe ghost, he, maybe like. it's true then. Maybe. Maybe he's possessed. Uh, like, I did a number crunch and um, Bob <laughs> Marty died in 1981. Snoop was born in 1971. So he can't quite be, a like, a strict reincarnation, I guess. But maybe he was 10 and like the spirit of Bob came to him and then lay dormant for many, many decades when he was doing rap and like being an actual pimp. I don't know. Maybe when Butler gave Snoop Dogg a voodoo painting. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure Wynn will find some way to insert himself in the Bob Marley Snoop connection for sure. Like he did talk about how he got the name like in terms of you ask about like the kind of the genesis of all this in the documentary and he said he went to a temple where um a high priest asked him what his name was and he said Snoop Dogg of course (laughs) (laughs) and Snoop says and he looked me in my eyes and said no more you're the light you are the line from that moment on it's like I had started to understand why I was there um in Jamaica of course and yeah he's kind of ditched it now I think at this point like Mm -hmm. I saw him on that versus thing rapping against DMX which was quite sweet um, so yeah. he seems to be back to the day job. I don't know. He's also doing the Just Eat ads. <laughs> what? Have you, what? No, have I haven't you seen, seen this? I haven't seen them, no. Oh, Craig, it's like worth, I don't know, what? YouTube Snoop Dogg uh, Just Eat ads. Like he's got a, a rap for it and everything. If I could remember it. He doesn't do oh. any fake patois, no? Somebody say Just Eat. Me. Get delivery like a G. See, hungry dogs gotta eat. I get mines every day, every week. Chicken wings to the crib. I'm sitting in burger in the low low. Hope they put the pickle in. Wonton on a catamaran. Oodles and noodles. Thank you, my man. Tacos to the chateau. 
please Did somebody say Just eat Private jetting in the night sky My man hand glide by with my fried rice Right What could you not love About a slice on the side of the hot tub What you gonna do oh, oh, The taco to the chateau Is the, the key, now, key line Do you reckon that was Bob Marley writing that line Or was uh, it Snoop himself Or was it just some ad guy That's like this is fun Look, uh, after all that smoke, you're going to get the munchies, so you got to eat. Very true. Another <laughs> stunning reinvention from Snoops. <laughs> it's quite the chameleon. Do you want to give us your number four, Zara? I will indeed. So earlier I mentioned um, an inclusion on my top five that's kind of contentious. Um, it has been rattling on my brain all day. Mm. Um, but nonetheless, I am very much... Um, happy with this number four. Okay. Couldn't resist it. And I I couldn't, I find it so difficult to chop this down to 30 seconds. So please, Adam. Hit it. Christina Aguilera with Dirty, if you didn't know. Two oars. Um, Two oars? Three oars? Three oars, I think. Three oars. Yeah. Okay. Three that is oars. a re- reinvention. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah. So this is why I kept it on my list because when I thought about it, I it's the one reinvention, I think, on my list. There's one other one, but this one in particular, I remember it happening in real time like I was yeah. 10 I was 10 in 2002 and as a 10 year old I will never forget the impact that seeing Christina Christina Aguilera in those leather chaps the piercings um I can't remember if she had any tattoos but then like also the really like kind of grungy hair as well the video for this song like my mind, my head almost fell off my body from the sheer shock of it because for the years kind of preceding that, like, I don't know, we had just been spoon fed such clean, innocent, like pop stars wearing promise rings um, kind of pop music. Um, whereas Christina Aguilera at this point, so Stripped was her fourth album. Um, her self-titled debut only came out in 1999. She had a Spanish album then in 2000 and a Christmas album in the same year. So this pivot came because she was really unhappy with her manager, uh, Stephen Kurtz, who she felt was like just really manipulating her image and her sound because he saw how lucrative um, this genre was. She was like, no, I actually want to create my own identity. I want to work on my artistry. Um, So she fired him, hired someone else, and then also got Linda Perry, obviously famously for Nominons. Infamously. Yeah, infamously. Um, And uh, Christina Aguilera, when she was writing this album, uh, was really influenced by Pink's Misunderstood because she saw how Pink kind of teetered on the edge of pop but was still very much an outsider to it and I always remember as well like even when I was really young I remember being really um 
not like sad, but like just really aware of how like Christina and Brittany were grand because they were conventionally pretty. Pink was always seen as weird because she had short pink hair. And I always just found that so ridiculous. So then obviously Christina comes out with Stripped. And like when you think back on that album and when you listen to like some of the lyrics, like um, the the song Can't Hold Us Down, she did with Lil Kim, which apparently is a diss track about Fred Durst and Eminem. Brilliant. Yeah, it's very good. It's so of that era. I mean. <laughs> it's so good. But just to hear like the the messages that like Christina was like um channeling through the lyrics, like very pro, um, very like feminist ideology, um, you know, talking about like in can't hold us down, like talking about like, you know, how men can get with loads of girls and it's he's a legend, whereas if a girl does it, she's legend. <laughs> Yeah, legend. Uh, whereas if a woman does it, she gets a derogative term like a whore or a slut, mm. like pinned to her, which um, she expresses on this. And it's all very much about like ownership and just like going out doing your own thing, which when I was researching this, I was like, Jesus, like that's like actually really impressive that it was 2002 that she was doing this with pop. Um yeah. I was kind of quite surprised then to learn that this album was kind of mixed, like received mixed reviews. Um, a lot of critics said that, like faulted it for not having a musical direction. Um, this album is like 70-ish minutes long. It's very long. It's got like a load of different genres from R&B to pop to like Latin to hip hop. And then when I was thinking about it again, in light of say like 2020 or whatever, I think that this album would actually be a, like received a lot better and we would have a bit more of an appreciation for the like sonic diversity because I think that this album is actually more of a mixtape, really. Okay. Um, not a playlist. No. A Drakean playlist. No. <laughs> never a playlist. <laughs> Jesus, never Drake. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so like I do feel that like there is a bit of nuance to this album um, and... I think it was a real statement of intent from her to just be like, look, I'm doing my own thing. And it was so influential. Like you had people like, I think it was a real like influential blueprint for like the Disney stars. Cause obviously she came up in the Mickey Mouse club. We've had people like Selena Gomez, Demi Lovato, uh, Miley Cyrus and Ariana Grande, who've all come through Nickelodeon. All of them have said that this album was hugely influential on their own songwriting and how they approached um, music. Um, So in that regard, I was like, okay, this is a reinvention that needs to be included because it had such a rippling butterfly impact. It liberated the Mickey Mouse Club. It liberated the Mickey Mouse Club. Ryan Gosling listened to it and was like, I'm going to do a film in which I play a neo-Nazi and no one can stop me. Um, (laughs) I don't know if the timeline's up. My final little uh, point about this before I let you uh, profess your love for Dirty Greg is um, there was an article about uh, Stripped and it included the line, and I just found this absolutely hilarious. It copped a lot of flack at the time for its sexualized imagery, but if you actually tried to shag to it, you'd probably kill the person. <laughs> oh yeah, maybe. I need to think about that. I will say, um, as a 13-year-old boy, when this came out in 2002, 
This video <laughs> did also blew my head off. <laughs> um, I was on board. <laughs> Very much so. I did think of Christina Aguilera um, when we were thinking about musical reinventions and it wasn't in a kind of worst context. Like This totally worked for her. Um, it was a way forward for kind of pop stars because so, so often that thing is cheesy of just like, I'm all grown up now. But it's like the tunes were there. She meant it. She was taking control mm-hmm. of the creative side of things and fair play to her. I'm not sure how much like legs it had for her, right? Like, she, I don't know if past that album and I know that album's kind of huge, but like, I can't really remember too many Aguilera singles thereafter. So, so like it had after- a huge impact. And then, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So soon afterwards, then she, I, the next kind of Christina phase that I remember is the like, Ain't No Other Man, where she went all pin up. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, it was yeah, so throwback. The- it was almost like kind of Lana stuff, but in a more pop guys <laughs> and just no one was up for it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, uh, my number four, my number four. This is what happens when a bunch of clowns get serious. Yeah, you'll probably never guess unless you know the album. Um, the jury's out on whether any rock band should take on a concept album, particularly around the 70s or 80s. Verdict is in when it comes to Kiss doing one and going full like Broadway, I think, with that. That was Kiss. The That's song was Kiss. Odyssey. Yeah. <laughs> it was taken from um, Music from the Elder, which was released in 1981. And this was like a deeply cynical move. Is there any other from Kiss? Where they'd already reinvented themselves in the late 70s as what? A disco act. <laughs> and they had like that song, like I was made for loving you. Like they had a couple of hits. And I guess with Kiss, like glam and the kind of the cartoonish thing, they're kind of built for doing some like throwaway disco songs. But when they tried to take on like this overwrought story, uh, this concept and bringing in like orchestral elements, it was a car crash. So they got on board the guy that had helped oversee the wall. And there is actually a plot to this whole thing. Um, The basic plot is the elder uh, involves recruitment and training of a young hero, the boy, by the Council of Elders who belong to the Order of the Rose, a mysterious group dedicated to combating evil. The boy is guided by an elderly caretaker named Morpheus. (laughs) The album's lyrics describe the boy's feelings during his journey and training as he overcomes his early doubts to become confident and self-assured and, I guess, a member of the KISS army. I don't know. This is, like, right before, I think, Spinal Tap. It feels like it inspired Stonehenge. And... It didn't sell well. They were already kind of on the on the ropes. I think they lost, like Ace Freely hit, like he was like, I'm out. He didn't return till the 90s after this one. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's been described as the absolute nadir of Kiss's existence, which is saying a lot. Like they sell coffins. Um, and yeah, like even the band themselves are like, this is not good. Paul Stanley's been like, yeah. Um, like that song we just heard, I think someone else wrote it. And he's like, when the guy that like came up with it did it, it was kind of sincere and it made sense. When I did it, it was just horrible. So I guess I would say lesson learned. They just went back to their bad old ways. So I don't know if that's a good thing. This song is definitely not a good thing. I, <laughs> Are you stunned? I, I don't know, Craig. 
I like when I was you're into, into it, it. I was kind of into it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, also, um, it kind of reminded me, like, it kind of reminded me of like, um, oh, what the hell is that Kate Bush? Um, the Kate Bush song where it's like, uh, oh, to, I'm not going to sing because I can't sing. Oh, to be enough. Oh. Okay, yeah, yeah. It kind of reminded me a little bit of that. Like it had the same kind of lament across the like the melody or something. But also uh I love how so in the um in the chat box there while that was going on, um Adam had a very funny where he said Kisco about Kiss doing disco and then I was like <laughs> I was thinking incredible Kiss Kiss from a rose, and then when you said the thing about uh, Kiss being from the order of the rose, I almost lost my shit because <laughs> I was validated in my Kiss from a rose being a genuine kind of. Uh-huh. Pun now that for is this. the song. Uh, um, I'm really fascinated to listen to this album. Go check it out. I feel like I did see some like murmurings online of people being like, "Do you know what? Actually, there was a lot of merit to that record." I I listened to maybe 20 minutes of it. I'm like, "No, I'm out." Like it's just How long is it? It's not actually as long as you would think this kind of concept record would be. It's maybe 40, 45 minutes. So maybe yeah, stick it on. You know, I, wrap up the week I, with a little oh yeah, kiss. Be. Like I'm definitely sticking that on. Um, <laughs> I initially thought so. It's one album that I've never listened to because I've always just heard that it's kind of bad and it's like a concept album as well. I initially thought that that was maybe the Who's Tommy. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's a good show because I think it even has the same. I feel like Kiss stole the plot because isn't that okay. about? I know Tommy's like, um. He doesn't have many senses or something. He's deaf and blind, or um, which isn't the term you should use now. But it's like in the song, and he like is really good at pinball. But he goes on a journey. It's all about boys going on journeys and like having caretakers called Morpheus or whatever. It's so very very <laughs> weird. I'm sure. I'm sure Gene Simmons has like trademarked Kisco years ago, and there's merch out there with Kisco. If not, he missed <laughs> oh. a total trick. Oh, and I'm definitely getting that for Christmas. The little yeah. T-shirt that says Kisco. Um, <laughs> You mentioned boys going on journeys. Yeah. Uh, my number three, I think, is the quintessential um, boy going on a journey that is utterly devastating. It's only tears that I'm crying. Guess I'm doing fine um, from his 2002 album Sea Change. Um, I think Beck is a funny one to put in a reinvention list because. It's kind of his career, right? Like, yeah, yeah. I think he's a strong shout. He's, yeah, no, he is. Um, no, he is. He is a strong shout. Um, but I think uh, he just constantly reinvents himself. Yeah. He's also yeah. kind of. Maybe I think at this point now there's like three different kinds of Beck. Um, there's that like uh, acoustic Beck that we just heard there. There's the really sample heavy Beck um, with like his Dust Brothers kind of collaborations. And now we've got that weird pop Beck. Um, Non-alcoholic what, Beck is what I like to call it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, which is like maybe his most success since Adelaide as well, which is, I don't know. Yeah, Just some songs there, but was, yeah. Yeah, Sea Change was huge. But I think what, for me, what really pinpointed Sea Change as the most crucial of his reinventions is, I remember growing up, um, my older brother um, is how I heard of Beck for the first time. He used to blast Midnight Vultures in the house. Um, my family home is a bungalow, so like there was literally nowhere to escape it. <laughs> so every morning getting ready for school, he would just have like Midnight Vultures full speed. So I just find it really fascinating that from an artist, from Midnight Vultures, which immediately preceded Sea Change, Beck's lyrics went from satin sheets, tropical oils, turn up the heat to the swimming pool boils to what we heard. The first line of Guess I'm Doing Fine is there's a bluebird at my window. I can't hear the songs he sings. So yeah. we hear the kind of slacker prankster who doesn't take much seriously. Yeah, like Prince pastiches. In- yeah, yeah. Yeah, to this incredibly vulnerable and distraught person. Um, the story up to this point when he was making this album is he was in a nine-year relationship with his fiance, uh, former fiance, uh, stylist Lee Lemon. Um, she cheated on him with a member of a Los Angeles band called Whiskey Biscuit. And Jesus. obviously, yeah. Insult to injury. Oh, like, come on. Back. I know. It's devastating. Like, I I had to really stop myself. I found myself going down a lot of rabbit holes with this particular era because it's just, I love this era of Beck as well. Um, so he was really sad. He wrote all of these songs in the space of a week. And then he called up his mate, Nigel Godrich, <clears throat> who he worked on with Mutations back in 98. And they worked on the album together. Also included in the recording was John Bryan. And also nicely was uh, Beck's dad, David Campbell, who mm. is a very accomplished and revered um, composer. Um, his inclusion actually on the album, I think, really counters it and elevates it from purely being a very acoustic very introspective record to adding like these really dramatic string arrangements on say like Paper Tiger that sound very much like Serge Gainsbourg um which kind of give it that extra oomph like it transports this album I think a lot more um another really nice thing about this album is that um when he toured it the Flaming Lips were his backing band um, so there's nice. actually a really cool, uh, when it came out, he was on Conan O'Brien being interviewed and it's really sad as well. Cause like Beck today just really upsets me because he's just not the Beck he was at Did- the start of his career. Like he's just, yeah, it just, it really depresses me. Like I saw him live a couple of years ago and it was... It was a bit upsetting, but anyway. Um, and he kind of does like Disney film songs and did Morning Face, because everyone was talking about Morning Face being a return to this sound. Yeah. And I love this album as well. Um, Lost Cause is maybe my d- favourite Beck song. But Morning Face <laughs> didn't quite work in the same way for me. Yeah. I don't know what it, it was. It lilted just a little bit too much. Like, whereas yeah. this album, I just think it has so much, like... It's not just, um, it's not very paint by numbers, like I'm emotional. And one thing actually about this was that like Beck wrote these songs, but he was like, I don't want to release them because I don't want to air my dirty laundry like out. But then he realized what a universal theme it was. And he was like, no, like 
that like people maybe will get something um but on the Conan O'Brien uh per, like appearance he performs Lost Cause and it's such a gorgeous arrangement of it but like Flame Lips are like in the back like performing with him Wayne Coyne is like uh n- uh, knee, not kneeling, um, cross-legged on the floor under a ba- blanket with Ted Danson beside him, and Ted Danson is playing a triangle. Um, Thank God Dave isn't here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fallen off his chair. <laughs> um, but that sounds yeah. wonderful to me. Yeah. So yeah. So that's my number three. Um, Beck, I nice. think is like a like crucial it. one. So yeah. Yeah, had to be there. I'm going to go from kiss awfulness to. Um, a group that had like some common references, I think, like comic book culture, quite like American, wanting to pull off the whole like uniform gang vibe, but um, just far, far superior. Punk greats, I adore them. But here's what their extremely white Virginian born bassist decided to do in the late 80s. A lot of German rapping there actually. That, that bit reminds me totally of like learning German in school and they try and do like funky songs to help you talk about like going to the dentist and it's kind of the same melody. That was D.D. King um, or D.D. Ramon, should I say, from the Ramones, taking on hip-hop with a little help from Debbie Harry, who, yes, is actually on this record. Uh, the things you'll do for friends, I don't know. Oh, <laughs> but, wow. you know, yeah. So, like, obviously so much rap from this period is dated to begin with, like, even stuff that was good at the time. Um, it's, a, you know, it's a lot of, like, my name is Craig and I'm here to say... <laughs> But even compared to like all that, this is just like the dregs. Like poor Didi just clearly had no aptitude for it. He was still in the Ramones at this point. Um, it was a few months before he left. He was actually writing some really good songs with the Ramones and as he did throughout their career. Like at one point, I think he, the Ramones bailed Didi Ramone out of jail in exchange for the rights to some of his songs, which is just like very New York and funny. Um, but yeah, he decided like his next move was going to be doing this album, Standing in the Spotlight. He'd done a song called Funky Man, which was like him bigging himself up. And the music critic, Matt Carlson, wrote of the album that it will go down in the annals of pop culture as one of the worst recordings of all time. Um, so yeah, he kind of quickly abandoned the hip hop. He ended up like playing with like Gigi Allen. Things didn't go well from the 90s. Just famously, obviously he had plenty of pro- problems, uh, you know, kind of, he had a tough life. He did addiction problems. He passed away many years ago. He was a great, the Ramones are incredible. But what was he thinking here? Like, it's just... Uh- yeah like when that was flies belief yeah i think my i've been as my mother would say i've been catching flies for the last couple of minutes Uh, (laughs) my my jaw has just absolutely dropped i cannot believe um yeah i can't believe this at all i've never heard of this reinvention either so thank you again oh you're very welcome like there was that overlap of him still being in the Ramones and apparently That's for those bizarre. final shows he would rock up to the shows in like the kind of hip-hop regalia and just kind of like be tricked out and on the cover and everything he's kind of going for a very run DMC thing 
Um, So yeah, I guess he was just trying to express himself, which is fair enough. And Mm. rest in peace, Didi. But yeah, yeah, I love the Ramones, love hip hop. Two New York treasures that probably shouldn't cross paths. That's my number three. I love also as well how Debbie Harry was involved. Yeah, she kind of crops up in weird like performances and stuff. She seems like she's just a real team player for the scene and people she kind of knows from like CBGBs. (laughs) (laughs) Like... You like need quite out. the guess yeah, I'm here, for Dee Dee Ramone in the late 80s. Like, fair enough. Okay. Yeah, I actually watched her recently in um, Videodrome. Have you ever oh, seen yeah. that film? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I know. Terrifying, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> moving swiftly on. <laughs> um, that was an excellent show, Craig. Um, Thank you. I love how left of field your, uh, your reinventions are. I have a lot to uh, listen now over the weekend. Um, you really don't, Sarah. <laughs> I... <laughs> I'm definitely going to that Kiss album. Um, I'll be listening to Miles Davis and you're listening to a Kiss concept record. (laughs) You're welcome. Um, Okay, so my number two is an artist who has reinvented himself numerous times. Um, I think, though, the period of reinvention that I've gone for is maybe the non-expected one. So without further ado, take it away, Bobby. I'm sick of love And I'm in the thick of it This kind of love I'm so sick of it Yeah, I'm sick of love and I'm in the thick of it A line that is so quintessentially Bob Dylan and also is only kind of humorous because it's Bob. I think if anyone else sang that you can line... get away with which, it. Yeah, I think if anyone else said that line, you'd be a bit concerned about them. Um, but with Bob, it's just kind of quite funny. Um, obviously, that was Lovesick from his 1997 album, Time Out of Mind. Craig, as you would know, is a true Steely Dan G. That's a reference. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so basically this is uh, Dylan's 30th studio album. I think the kind of quintessential Dylan reinvention is his like 1965 going electric with bringing it all back home and obviously getting booed Judas. off. Yeah, getting booed off at Newport Folk Festival. 70s were also really interesting for him. Um, he had some really great albums, Nashville Skyline with uh, Johnny Cash, South Portrait, which Grail Marcus famously said, what is this shit? Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's still oh, my Grail. favourite line. It's, it's my favourite line. And then to have like Blood in the Tracks right like in the middle of the 70s, which then pivoted into the Christian rock bob, which I think is where things began to go wrong. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, um, so that's where things went bad. Um, Things started to come good again, I feel anyway, with this album in 97. It's the second time he worked with Daniel Lanois, who obviously by this stage had worked with Emmylou Harris with Wrecking Ball. um, And then obviously you 2 with The Joshua Tree and Octone Baby. Um, This album, I read Chronicles Volume 1 last year and I found like Bob's 
conversations like about this kind of period so funny um and just like a real highlight within the story of that book to read um anytime he's interviewed about this like he makes it very clear that it was like a struggle so Mm. it's like my recollection of that record is that it was a struggle a struggle every inch of the way ask daniel lanois who was trying to produce the songs ask anyone involved in it they would all say the same as a result, though, it held together as a collection of songs. That album sounds to me a little off. There's a sense of some wheels going in this this way, some wheels going that way. But hey, we're just about getting there. I think that like the reason why I chose this era is because I think it's I think that actually this reinvention is maybe Bob's most important. I don't know how you feel about that, Craig. It fuels the following decades of like him being still yeah. relevant and a creative force. He arrested yeah. the slide, essentially. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like, I think it really invigorated his musicianship. And I think it also made him face like, I think this is an album really where it's the first time we hear him facing mortality because he became yeah. quite sick after it. But during the, the sessions, like a lot of the songs, you know, there are like there's uh trying to get to heaven hope i or hope i get to heaven before the doors close or whatever um i also think that this album in a weird way parallels quite nicely with rough and ready ways um in that in that like i think that yeah we had then the standards era of Bob which was very sweet he kind of turned into a crooner but I think that this album is really swampy and I think that that is kind of really part of Lanois' sound Uh, I think that Rough and Rowdy Ways returned to that it's a bit grittier we also hear Bob in a very intimate way um, like we do on this album but also in a very um, like he's intimate but then also it just feels like it would feel impossible to experience these songs in a room with him. That kind of way, like he's he's. <laughs> yeah, it would. I don't know how I've described. It'd be that. intense. It, yeah, yeah. certainly. But, Key West off the new album. I can totally imagine fitting into that swampy thing of time out of mind for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I re- I feel that like um, in a weird way, I think that Highlands is like one of the kind of key precursors and the real through line from this album to Rough and Rowdy Ways. Obviously, that's like, that was a 16 minute long song. So descriptive. He mentions like Neil Young, whose birthday it is today, I believe. Happy birthday, um, Neil. Yeah. Pour one out for the big lad. Um, Stick on on the beach. Yeah. Great album. <laughs> 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 Getting my indie points there. Let's just hope he doesn't go off in an ambulance. Um, (laughs) But uh, yeah, I just, I thought that this is such a, such a driving force in, in Bob's discography. And it's also, I don't know, I feel that it's a very uh, sincere Bob because he's like, he's at an older point in his life. He doesn't have to kind of prove himself to anyone. Um, Yeah. Yeah, it's just a very comfortable Bob. He's not trying to be like a tenacious little scut for the sake of it. Like he's, he's earned his chops. Like, um, Agreed. Yeah. When I heard, when I, when Lubsa came on, I was thinking, oh, you're going with the reinvention of him being in advertising, <laughs> which is like, this was used when he featured in, I think it's 2000, early 2000s ad for Victoria's Secret. <laughs> it's just like him kind of 
kind of semi-leering at like the, the what do they call them, angels or whatever so they walk around. And What do they like, call them? Yeah, like you don't know, Craig. <laughs> do they call them angels or is that Charlie's angels? They think, oh, they do actually. Okay, they so I know that. They call them angels. They wear wings. <laughs> they do, yeah. Yeah. I was focusing on Bob. But what yeah, was brilliant okay. about that ad was that, like, back in the 60s, he'd been asked by a journalist, like, Bob, will you ever sell out? He's like, no way, only to sell ladies' undergarments. And then, like, 40 <laughs> years later, he's in, he's doing that very thing, which is very Bob. Um, uh, yeah, brilliant. I also loved watching the uh, the Grammy performance he did of Lovesick, the Soybon. Oh, bomb. yeah. Yeah, so yeah, good. that was... It's so What good. was that? It was great. Yeah, we love Bob. Yeah. Okay. Um, I will continue to lower the tone. We're going from rock to rap. Uh, we did go from rock to rap. Now we go <laughs> rap to whatever the hell this is. That's Lil Wayne with Prom Queen, uh, the lead single from 2010's Rebirth. This was at a time when he was the biggest star in rap. Um, he'd like just been anointed as Jay-Z's successor by Jay-Z <laughs> on the Carter Tree. And I think Lil Wayne saw there was like no more hip hop worlds to conquer. So instead of weeping, he decided to get guitar lessons. Um, not guitar lessons, guitar lessons singular from the sounds of things. <laughs> <laughs> this is... Yeah, this was so the sexy. album that emerged after he started doing shows where he would bring it, he'd break out the guitar and try to shred. Adam, come here, a tiny bit of it, please. Yeah, I should point out that's not one of those like funny parody shredding videos. That is him actually playing and you need to see it with the footage and he does it in like music videos as well where he's like really into it and it's this like kind of standout moment. And, you know, Lil Wayne, I adore. He's a colossus. He's so talented with words, but not with his fingers. (laughs) Um, And then like his idea of rap or sorry, his idea of rock is just like very... It's like he wants to be Axl Rose mixed with like Fred Durst with a tiny bit of like, uh, I don't know. I don't know what it is. It's just a total mess. I, I saw one critic say that it's like he likes the idea of rock music more than he actually listens to it, which makes total sense because it's just atonal. It's, yeah, it's bad. Yeah, I um, that is one from your list, Craig, that I won't be um, re- like <laughs> investing time in uh, exploring. Okay. Um, that tread, Jesus Christ. Yeah, I don't know if he's improved in the years since or if he's given up. He's returned to, um, you know, rapping, of course. The Carter Five was great. I was really happy that he got like, people were excited about it. It was nice because I do have a lot of time for Lil Wayne. So influential. Um, thankfully, mm. not many hip-hop artists have gone down this path though i guess i don't know maybe he's responsible for post malone with this album <laughs> i doubt it somehow but yeah that's my number two well uh yeah you've kind of <laughs> left me a bit speechless <laughs> <I don't know. 
one. Um, Save us. Palette cleanser, yeah. we need it. Yeah. And none of my predictions for your top five have come. Oh, really? Okay, what none. were you predicting? Oh, well, hold on. We've got well, one to go. Yeah, we'll so, wait. yeah, we'll yeah, wait, we'll yeah, wait. We'll wait. Um, so, for my gold medal, um, I think that this is, I don't know, I think it could be argued as probably the greatest reinvention in music of all time. Okay. Um, it is definitely a reinvention that comes from a very uh, sincere place. Um, and yeah, let's just crack straight into it. The Rainbow, the opening track from uh, Talk Talk's fourth album, uh, Spirit of Eden, um, from 1988. Um, so good. So good. I did not I, call this. I totally forgot about this. I thought like you'd go with maybe a bigger star that was kind of known for reinvention. But this is, in terms of a total, I was going to say musical evolution, but just transformation. Yeah. Yeah. It's just phenomenal. Um, like I was really enjoying like the last couple of days, like listening to like obviously the singles from the first three albums, say like The Party's Over, It's My Life and The Colour of Spring, which had singles like It's My Life and Life's What You Make It, which were such huge 80s synth pop songs. Um, Talk Talk always kind of like, I always associate them so with like Tears for Fears, that kind of really buoyant fun um synthy yeah yeah it's just brilliant like so danceable and then the success so like obviously the success of their previous work allowed them the time and budget to make an album um whatever they wanted uh spirit of eden it was the result uh the label were disgusted by this there's a really funny story how like when one of the A&R guys and EMI heard it for the first time he cried in his office not because he was happy but because he was like I can't sell this um, oh so, worth it for that alone uh, like great music aside I love that uh, <laughs> so you, you love to kick funny. a suit like um so, so 80s as well isn't it like just like so probably good. wearing braces and just like you know <laughs> he picked up his oversized mobile phone pulled out the aerial and was just like it's not a hit yeah it's like Gina Gina Rollins is it Gina Rollins or Gina Davis in the fly it's like her editor at the magazine that she works in that's the kind of person that I get yeah, that picture yeah. um, but the recording then of this album so obviously Talk Talk um, Mark Hollis is like the key figure um, alongside their producer uh, Tim Freeze Green who played a lot of instruments with them throughout their career This the sessions for this um, just sound so cool so they basically were just like in a blackened out studio they had an oil projector and a strobe light that was just like kind of giving like flickers of light they kind of had a an open door policy where they just had musicians coming in to audition so they had like I don't know saxophonists or harmonica players or violinists that would come in and they'd get them to improvise for hours and then Hollis and um, Freeze Green would just like chop it up and make these really 
atmospheric, immersive and really beguiling songs. Like when you think about, like, I think there's loads of different like phrases from, I think, Spirit of Eden that you could have used. But I just thought the rainbow was like a key one to use because that album starts and it's like almost two and a half minutes before you actually hear a conventional kind of instrumentation on it. Um, I just loved as well the sincerity or sincerity um, like across this album. Like Hollis was just like, just really loves music. Yeah. Um, Obviously, sadly, he passed away recently enough or like a couple of years ago. Um, I also just loved how his passion for music and the energy he put into this extended to like not wanting to like market this album. I'm sure is the that you can't really market this album. He also was just like, I don't want to recreate this live. So they were like, we're not touring it. He said, Hollis kind of said about that. People would just want to hear the songs as they are in the album. And for me, that's not satisfying enough. And then he continued by saying, there's no way that I could ever play again. A lot of the stuff I played on this album because I just wouldn't know how to do it. Uh, or I wouldn't know how to play it live. Uh, to take apart, to take part that. Oh yeah. So he's basically saying, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> the can that I had has got to me. Um <laughs> But he was basically saying that like he couldn't recreate that sound because it was born out of such spontaneity and um, it's not something that he wants to learn to just like churn it out every night. Um, so yeah, afterwards they never toured again. Um, shortly afterwards, Paul Webb left the band and then um, yeah, Mark Hollis went on to focus on his family. Afterwards in 91, they had... Um, laughing stock which kind of followed in a similar vein but it's just it's such a remarkable album to yeah. like it's and it's one that you really have to listen to from start to finish like you can't just go hmm, I'm yeah gonna. and it will maybe take a few listens to kind of seep into your being but like once it's with you yeah it's so powerful and mm. I, I think they're a good band to kind of like gradually get into just kind of like in terms of their discography you can start with the stuff you'll know um maybe from it's my life or maybe from the color of spring but yeah spirit mm-hmm. of eden absolute masterpiece i love laughing stock as well which mm-hmm. is like them kind of going down that same path but like pairing things back even more and then mark hollis released a solo album which was just even more bare and just like the essence of music or whatever yeah. and it's really worth seeking out um so yeah yeah strong choice yeah, I just, I think he seems like such a cool guy. And I I think the thing I love most about this reinvention is just how like he defied and went against like the suits, um, which, yeah. and did what he wanted to do, didn't care about like the commercial success of it, just did it because he loved it, which I just find is so cool. Um, and a really great quote from him, I think it was like around the time of the record was that he said... I like sound and I also like silence. And in some ways I like silence more than I like sound. So I think that's pretty cool. Poetry. That's beautiful. Wow. Okay. So we're going to go from one very cool guy to another very cool guy who doesn't care what people say. Um, so a lot of artists have gone country over the years. You'll have your Bon Jovi or your Aerosmith just doing it to get kind of some CD sales in like Southern States. Mostly humdrum rubbish. What happens when country goes alt-rock? Have a listen to this and see if you can imagine it being played in, say, Croke Park five times. It's movies, maybe it's a box, maybe it's a government. 
That was a little known performer <laughs> called Chris Gaines. Did you have this one, Zara? I actually didn't, and I'm really sad I didn't. <laughs> um, Chris also occasionally goes by Gart, <laughs> Gart Brooks. Um, this is his like quite baffling alter ego um, with a dyed fringe to die for, a oh. chiseled cheekbones that Gart was, clearly wanted forever. I was about to say his cheekbones are off the wall. They are so sharp. Very sharp. A lot um, of contour. Kind of emo side fringe stuff going on as well. Like he disappeared, mm. but I think he re-emerged in like 2008 at like Crawdaddy. Just, you know what I mean? <laughs> had that vibe going on. Antics I think like. <laughs> this, yeah. Total antics head. This had to be number one. Like Chris Gaines is just a punchline like that doesn't need a setup. So yeah, uh, Garth Brooks decided to create this fictional persona. Um, to explore like different musical styles. But the plan was that it was going to be um, a film, first of all, right? So Chris Gaines would be in this film called The Lamb. The motion picture never materialised. Oh, no. Um, so he'd been working on this like pre-soundtrack album that was like supposed to be like the best of Chris Gaines, but just it was all Garth. So that got released. No film came out which meant that people were just like, what are you doing, Garth Brooks? Like, what is this? Have you lost your mind? There was no real explanation at the time. It went to number two, I think. Like, he got a couple of Billboard singles out of this that were like, like Lost in You was maybe his biggest top 40 hit, just like initially. Um, And it's since been like covered by Childish Gambino and like that Like a Virgin thing, uh, where it's Mm. just, it's now clearly being you know revived as like a post irony actually it's quite good this album's not good this album took a while to track down as well right because Garth Brooks is just so not online in terms of his mm. music and Chris Gaines doubly so so like I kind of was following like MySpace dead ends I, I, I reached a point where I was like facing the real possibility that I might have to like pay for this clip on like Deezer or something um I found I found a way around it maybe um <laughs> But yeah, this is him doing like, I don't know, like there's something of Nine Inch Nails in this song in particular. Mm. It's kind of like social commentary. It's very earnest. There's a variety of styles in this album, but it's more about the context of like him creating this character. And I don't quite know how to explain it, right? Because there's this clip of him on stage with his usual audience trying to explain Chris Gaines to the audience, right? And he's talking about the film that's going to be happening. And he's talking about how, like, and the, the audience are clearly like, what? And he's saying, yeah, we, and it's, it follows this guy called Chris Gaines. And we cast this really young dude for his early years who's like, he's like a movie star. He's, the guy's so handsome. And, um, and then he kind of jokingly says, and then like Chris gets into a car accident later in life. And he comes out as me and he's like doing this like faux, like dep- self-deprecating thing where he's like, I know, like, he's like, oh, gee shucks, you know, uh, I know I'm not that good looking, but, and then he puts up a pic, the picture of Chris Gaines with the cheekbones, right? And he's kind of going like, yeah, I know I'm not much to look at, but also he leaves it up so long that he's clearly like, I look great. Do you know what I mean? He's like, I look fantastic. And I've always wanted to do this. And he's not joking. He's not oh. joking at all. Um, it's super like uncanny valley. And I think Art Brooks is like that in general. He's got this weird, I don't know. It's like a kind of odd corporate sincerity that he's going for. Like he's like uh, your stepdad that's trying to be friendly or something. 
have you watched the um have you watched the Netflix documentary Two Parter? No. I might watch Craig. it this weekend. I hear he keeps crying. He keeps weeping. Craig for like is no reason. Phenomenal. I watched okay. it. Uh I watched it during lockdown one and um it's just like each episode, so it's two episodes and they're like I think an hour and a half long. Um, and it was Tapley who was like a uh, friend of the show, Tapley. David Tapley, um, yeah, former co-host, yeah. Yeah, he was like, let's watch this. And I was like, oh, no, I'm not I'm not wasting an hour and a half of my life watching this. Ten minutes then, Craig, I swear to God, I was hooked. It's the best okay. music documentary series of all time. And they also delve into Ireland. So like the 6-1 News is Oh wow. Like, yeah, like it's so good. Uh, Katie Hannon, who's a primetime reporter, she's interviewed in the documentary. His daughters are interviewed. Um, he's also like sitting on a chair, like AC Slater style. Of course um, he is. That's how he sits yeah. on chairs. But he did, I think, um, a press conference as well as Chris Gaines. Oh yeah, he did the whole shebang. He yeah. did... He did, I think he did Saturday Night Live as Garth Brooks, but then the musical guest was Chris Gaines and he didn't allude to the fact it was him at all. Like it was just like straight up introduced as like, and now Chris Gaines performing and there was no kind of like jokes about it. (laughs) So odd. He's an intense guy. He's Um, really intense, yeah. This reminded me, of course, of when he arrived finally on social media with that stunning hotel room video. Adam, can you help us out with some audio? Well, I guess it's official. We're now on Facebook. I really wasn't sure about this at the start. But then a friend of mine said something that just made all kinds of sense. She said, think of it more as a conversation. I like that. But I'm already finding out on my own is that it's wiping the walls out between you and me. And I really like that. It allows us into each other's worlds, or I guess in my case, the hotel room. When I think about things I want to post, I want to post cool stuff, slick stuff, neat stuff. But most of the stuff I'm going to post is going to be raw stuff like this. Because it's just who I am. So if this is truly a conversation, then I say let the conversation begin. <laughs> Craig, raw I like stuff. to imagine... Clearly prepared speech. Yeah, go on. <laughs> I like to imagine that that's what you're like on your Zoom calls at your advertising co-workers. <laughs> so I've got a pitch, Cool stuff, guys. slick stuff. Yeah, it's just who I am. Real stuff. <laughs> Um, Let also, the conversation begin. <laughs> oh Sounds gosh. like a fucking villain's line in Batman or something. Let oh, the conversation begin. Oh his man. delivery is just impeccable. Like, and also in that documentary, you're just like, is this scripted? Like, it kind of has that story of Anvil quality to it, where initially you think it's a spoof, but then you re- like you have that moment. Where it's like, oh god, no, this is actually real. Like, this is real people, real co- careers real conversation <laughs> yeah um but also at the end of that documentary which i just think, thought was so funny was like so they interview loads of people that he's like worked with and and like his family and whatever and they're like what is your favorite garth brooks song and everyone's like oh gee oh that's a tough one he's just got so many amazing songs the dance or uh like they just all of them just go for the dance or his uh or if tomorrow never comes like oh it has to be if tomorrow never comes that's such a hit 
And you're just like, this is kind of embarrassing because they're only really mentioning the songs that everyone knows. Super obvious songs. Yeah. Whereas like when they ask his daughters, they're, they will give They like go friends in low cut. places. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they give the deep cut and it's like, oh God, like your daughters are the only people who actually like fully listen to your albums. That's quite sad. Yeah. It's got to be the dance though, right? I always remember the dance oh, from yeah. it, it being used, it playing over the montage of... Brazil getting destroyed by Germany in the World Cup and like Brazilians in the stadium just weeping openly and it was just so beautiful and so sad and it worked perfectly so thank you Garth thank you for the memories and the music and Chris Gaines I guess yeah um, I'm speechless now I think we've said it all Sarah, thank you so much. Is there anything no else you want to say or get out there or promote or check out at Sarah underscore Hederman right? That's the one yeah um, um, no, not that. It's just big thanks for having me. Um, had a lot of fun doing this. Being emotional. It's been great. It's been, it's been a journey, my friend. We've had some real conversations. <laughs> we have. Um, okay. Well, we will return next week for more real conversations this time with David returning. Uh, Patreon.com forward slash no encore if you want to support the show. If you're already doing so, well, then you're just the absolute best, aren't you? Um, <laughs> Thank you, Sarah Hedman. You've been fantastic. Adam, Thanks, you've Craig. been silently fantastic as ever. Thanks, This Adam. is Craig Fitzpatrick. That's no encore. And Zara, if this truly has been a conversation, <laughs> I say let the conversation conclude. Bye. Bye. <laughs> this podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Celebrate this July 4th with a special presentation of A Capital Fourth. Join your host, Vanessa Williams, with performances from Sea to Shining Sea, starring Jimmy Buffett, Gladys Knight, Alan Jackson, Cynthia Erivo, Pentatonix, Renee Fleming, Train, Jennifer Nettles, Mickey Guyton, Jimmy Allen, Ali'i Cravalho, Laura Osnes, Ali Stroker, and the greatest live fireworks display in the USA. It's A Capital Fourth, sponsored by the Boeing Company and American Airlines, Sunday, July 4th, 8, 7 Central only on PBS. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.